This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey there, listeners. This episode is sponsored by us. Book Riot Live is coming to New York City November 12th and 13th. We will be there doing a live version of this show and many more things. Walter Mosley will be there. Mara Wilson will be there. Jade Chang will be there. And so many other amazing writers and book-related experts. It's going to be a great time. We'll have parties and panels and so much more. So come hang out with us. Visit bookriotlive.com to register today and use the offer code wheelhouse, all one word, to save $20 on your registration. Again, that's bookriotlive.com, offer code wheelhouse. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 176. We're recording on Thursday, September 22nd. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Rebecca, welcome back from vacation four days after you've been working already. Hello. Thank you. Yeah, I was going to say I kind of feel back from vacation, but the number of takes it took me to do that Book Riot Live (laughs) ad at the top would indicate that perhaps my brain is still at the beach. (laughs) Yeah, well, w- welcome back. Um, Jen was on last week. She did a great job. And what's we'll have her back again. We'll, we'll add her, and, add her yeah. to the mix, uh, especially since she has so much. I, I know, but I forget that she's worked for like 10,000 bookstores. I mm-hmm. think that's the number she, she quoted yeah, last week. Yeah, that would week, be accurate. Uh, something that range. So she has lots of uh, frontline bookselling experience. Um, she does know her stuff. We're so lucky to have her. Follow up. Uh, no. I'm sad to report. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to start you off with a rage-inducing follow-up. Um, but that story that Jen and I, or was it you and I? I can't we, we talked about We this, talked about yeah. it two weeks it ago. Um, Robert uh, Morin, the New Hampshire librarian, University of New Hampshire librarian, that, that, that ate basically uh, uh, frozen dinners for 40 years to save up a nest egg to bequeath to the New University of New Hampshire, came out this week that of his $4 million um, uh, gift, $1 million dollars of it would be used to buy a new scoreboard at the football stadium for the University of New Hampshire, uh, which seems to me disappointing. Yeah. I mean, so I dis- I know this is how this works with general endowment funds. Um, yeah. But. Uh, yeah, I was, hmm. I was talking to Bob about it um, because he you know, occasionally he's a financial advisor and he sure. occasionally he has clients who want to leave gifts like this. And he was talking about how specific you have to oh, be yeah. in your instructions of the trust that you're leaving if you don't want a thing like this to happen and how frequently it goes off the rails anyway. But I feel like I'm just walking around in a Tennessee Williams play muttering like mendacity. <laughs> and like it's just it's. They had to know how bad this is for for nothing else. It's terrible optics to like get this great PR from having a librarian who was so devoted to his work and so devoted to the community of his school that he, like you were saying, ate frozen dinners and drove a a 1970 or no, it was a um, 1992 Plymouth that he drove like forever and ever and ever. A Plymouth. A Plymouth. Yeah, a Plymouth. A Plymouth. So that he could leave $4 million and like no one genuinely thinks that he would have been excited about spending a million of it on a football scoreboard. They had all this great PR and then they just went and tanked it, but they, 
they had to have known it would be bad optics and just decided not to care, which I think makes this even worse. Yeah, either they knew or they didn't know, right? Anyway, which of those guys do you want to be? Do you want to be the obtuse? Oh, I, I didn't know that spending the 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 little the little we dude's thought he just wanted money. to make a gift to the school. I mean, it'd be one thing if like, and he went to uh, the University of New Hampshire insert mascot here every Saturday. You know, like he was right, a huge football right. fan or something else like that. Now maybe that story's there, um, but you know, it's, I ranted a few weeks ago. Ebooks. I don't want to get started on athletic <laughs> money in universities because we could be here for days. Uh, we don't want to talk about that. But let this be a, a warning to you. If you are someone, if you're out there driving to Plymouth and eating um, Swanson frozen dinners, please earmark your your gift. Uh, and I this falls under the that whole Google don't be evil business yeah. to me too. Like if you are the recipient of money like this, like four million dollars is such an act of generosity and a kind of a lifelong act of generosity that required real care and planning and sacrifice honor that this is a really jerky thing to do also you know i mean he he gave he gave the money i mean he had a will and everything but maybe some more specificity now we don't know what Mm -hmm. mr moore himself would think about this i have to say i don't want to put words into his mouth but it's kind of like the prince thing like have a get a will make sure things are going where you want it to go especially at the largest state you know don't trust people after the fact to act in good faith, uh, right. unfortunately. So, unfortunately. Unfortunately. All right. Um, let's move let's on. Let's move on. Let's do our first good sponsor. Good news with our first sponsor. Yeah. Crooked Kingdom by Lee Bardugo is sponsoring this week. You know Lee Bardugo's name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the sequel to Six of Crows. It's about Kaz Brecker. He and his crew have just pulled off a heist so daring, I love a good heist story, uh, that even they didn't think they would survive. Instead of divvying up a fat reward, they're right back to fighting for their lives. They've been double-crossed and badly weakened, and the crew is low on resources, allies, and hope. As powerful forces from around the world descend on Ketterdam to root out the secrets of the dangerous drug known as Jurda Parem, old rivals and new enemies merge to challenge Kaz's cunning and test the team's fragile loyalties. A war will be waged on the city's dark and twisting streets, a battle for revenge and redemption that will decide the fate of the Grisha world. Okay. This is one people have been looking forward to, that her Grisha trilogy, um, I think Kit uh, Steinkellner yes. declared at Book Riot a few years ago, like, read the Grisha trilogy, this is the heir to the Harry Potter mm-hmm. throne. Um, and that world was so popular that Lee Bardugo wrote the Grisha trilogy and then wrote Six of Crows, also in that world, and Crooked Kingdom is the, the sequel to that. So I think now there will be five books uh, in this mm. Grisha world the cover is beautiful too i'm looking at it um, right now i've got a hard cover yeah, on my desk oh are you yeah it looks like it, sh- it it just looks gorgeous it is a beautiful book beautiful book uh, um, so we will have a, a link in the show notes if you want to check that out this looks like also a good sort of curl up with it in fall i was trying to think of an analog for you've had a trilogy and then you write like another sequel yeah parallel just in the same du- world. this is a, the rare duology I was having a hard time coming up with that. Uh, yeah, I guess like if um if Margaret Atwood announced that there were going to be two more books in right. the world of Mad Adam. Yeah, but not using the same work. characters really, but right. just sort of using the same. Because Tolkien didn't do it. You know, Rowling hasn't done it yet. Um, I guess Fantastic Beasts, the movies, is, is an equivalent sort of move. But uh, in terms of books, I can't think of a, another one. If you've got one, send us an email, podcast at bookwright.com if we're, if we're missing yep. one. And in the meantime, you can find Crooked Kingdom by Lee Bardugo wherever books or are sold, or we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Um, okay, let's get into the stories this week. So uh, we always talk about 
um, Amazon's annual list of the best cities for book lovers mm-hmm. um, with all the attendant qualifiers. Of, you know, it's Amazon saying people who, you know, where do people buy the most stuff from? Amazon do the most reading from Amazon. And we always say, well, this is the not a great list, but it's the list we have. Well, I found an alternate list this week of the best cities for book lovers. Put out, um, I think it's sort of one of these content marketing things that people do yeah. these days. Smart asset, they're like a mortgage and home buying thing. But you know what? It was interesting, so good on them. So I linked to it. They did their own, uh, it's not really a study, but ranking, I guess, of the best cities for book lovers. And what they privileged were, um, you know, places to buy books, you know, and places to get books, libraries, bookstores, etc. Mm-hmm. But also access to shared bookish experiences, I guess is the way to put it. So could, could you go to a reading? Could you go yeah. to a talk? Could you go to a panel and things like that? And, and like book club membership. Yeah, book club libraries. membership, libraries. Yeah. So it feels to me, I, I like the premise of the study better. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you? It's Yeah, I like the premise of it better too. Like I think basically anything is better yeah. than equating great cities for readers with cities that buy the most from Amazon. Right. Um, this is a much more holistic approach. And it seems like like they're considering what it is to be a book lover. It's not just to buy and read a bunch of books, but to participate in mm-hmm. some kind of readerly community or to use your community resources for readers like your library. Right. Um, yeah, I think it's a much better approach. I did not dig like deep into methodology. No, I didn't corner, either. I didn't either. Um, for this, but it it. I think is an interesting and not um, altogether intuitive list. Yeah, I think after I looked at it, it made more sense to me. And I, and I, you know, again, I don't know all the cities on the list um, intimately for sure. But so the, the ranking goes Boston, Cleveland, Ann Arbor, Denver, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Detroit, Madison, Des Moines, Salt Lake City, and San Francisco. Hmm. Um, and so Boston for my money, and I've lived in New York, and now I live in Portland too, which I have to get bandied about. Gracie's for book lovers. I do think Boston is the best city in in the country for a book lover. And, and yeah, I would agree. And the and the reasons are a lot of reasons that went into this. There's a lot of bookstores for one, and there's a lot of great independent bookstores there too. But you also have your Barnes and Noble, what have you. But the other thing is, it's it's like uh, it's a university disaster. There's a university you can't you can't turn around a corner without running into a liberal mm-hmm. arts college. Um, and so you have. All the things that go on around that, you know, readings, talks, people come there. It's also a big enough city that authors make it stops on their tours because there's a bunch of places they can go to there. But it's not so big. We get into the New York problem where there's just so many people that the number of bookstores per capita is actually lower than sort of Lawrence, my hometown, right? Which is there's one, there's two independent bookstores if you count a used bookstore for basically 60,000 people. Well, if that was the case in New York, there'd be like 4,000 independent bookstores just in New York. It's like, <laughs> like it just doesn't hold up. So you so you get these nice ratios in college towns. So Boston is basically a big college town is how I think about it. Um, or a small big town. I don't know what to think about, but that makes sense to me. Cleveland, I you know, I don't think I haven't spent I don't think I've spent a, a minute in Cleveland, Ohio. I know nothing about it. But then so then after that it's Ann Arbor. Perfect sense, mm-hmm. right? A yeah. big little town, a big college town. So same with Cedar Rapids, same with Madison, same with Des Moines. Um, and then Cleveland, Denver, Detroit, Salt Lake City, San Francisco are all kind of second tier in terms of population cities. They're not Los Angeles. They're not Houston. They're not New York. They're not Chicago. So that you get that big city 
you know, hive of activity without this sort of diminishing our returns on population for book, for bookstores. So that so this list makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised not to see like the Raleigh Durham Chapel Hill triangle yeah. show up in this for those same university. I think you did, your your, your language described it because it's a triangle, so it's it not is, Charlotte, right. it's not Raleigh, it's not Durham, it's like all yeah. of them. So if you're breaking if it out just by city, right? Yeah. If they could have lumped it together by like region, these might yeah. uh, have or like phone area code different. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something yeah, something like that because that experience of being in Boston, like right, it's one city, it's contained. Um, you can you can't really like wander down a Boston street without bumping mm-hmm. into like a bookstall or a little used bookstore or one of the city's many excellent independent bookstores. But the triangle sort of feels that way to me too. It's just bigger and more yeah. spread out and right. It's three different cities uh, that they're not going to collapse into one region, even though like a real estate person probably would collapse them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which right. is what this is. Do you think the Iowa thing has anything to do with the writer's workshop there and like the intense literary culture that exists well, around uh, that? Like Cedar Ra- Prairie I mean, Des Moines is a great, I mean, these are great towns, Midwest towns with, with schools and libraries and things like that. I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Cause I guess, Iowa City and Ames are the two big college towns for Iowa and Iowa State. So I don't actually know what's in Des Moines and Cedar Rapids right there. That's interesting. Mm. I, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, University of Iowa Writers Workshop is at University of Iowa, but that's not one of these things. Right. Cities. Yeah, right. Um, that's true. So, but Madison, I'm not surprised. Ann Arbor, mm-hmm. I'm not surprised. I mean, really, the college town for a book lover is your best bang for your buck. I mean, you. I was a little surprised not to see Eugene on here, but, you know, all, there's all these big land-grant universities – could be on there. Like Kansas is a great college. Mm-hmm. Like Lawrence is a great college town. Uh, you know, Ann Arbor is a classic college town. Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. Col- yeah. Columbia, Missouri. Columbia, Missouri, good college town. So Athens, Georgia, you know, mm-hmm. any, anything like that, I wouldn't be surprised to see. Um, but if you, I think Boston from experientially and sort of data driven, I think that makes sense to me as the best city for a book lover. Now they're not adjusting for say cost of living, right? Because uh, if they did that, right. it's different. Because Boston's expensive these days, uh, and forget about San Francisco, um, for sure. So I was a little surprised to see Denver. I have to say, yeah, I don't think it was a great expecting... book town. But uh, again, I haven't spent much time there in twenty years, so I, I doubt it's the same as it once was. You know, I think Detroit is a little surprising here, yeah. too, at least for the popular narrative yeah. about what kind of city Detroit is. That's a good is. point. That's a really good point. Um, nice to see, like, some numbers coming out behind. This is a an intellectually thriving uh, place for readers. And if you cool. look at it as pushpins on a map, the upper Midwest is just destroying. It's just killing this list. It's got two, three, five, six, seven, and eight, sort of from Iowa up through Wisconsin, down through Michigan, back through Ohio. Yeah, there's nothing below the Mason-Dixon. <sighs> That's a good point. Hadn't really thought about that. Hadn't looked at it that way. Um, so, yeah, between between those cities, that's six of the list. Um, some of that is those big, big 10 land-grant schools is there, yeah. are there. and But but that Iowa, Iowa for book lovers, underrated, because you do have the Iowa's Writer Workshop. You have two great universities at least. Um, mm-hmm. And then you also have a lot of great liberal arts colleges in, in Iowa. Um, interesting list. So, uh, you know, there you go. I, I like this list. I don't know. We had to, again, we didn't talk about methodology. If I was designing a study, um, I guess it's not, you're not trying to measure how many books someone who lives in one of these cities reads. It's like, if you like to read a lot of books, what's the best one for you? Yeah, this is kind of quality of book life. Yeah, quality of book life. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. 
Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, good list. All right, what do we want to talk about? Oh, well, go you ahead. Know, yeah, speaking of best cities for book lovers and Boston, yeah. uh, some of you will think this is good news and some of you <laughs> won't, but it looks like the next Amazon bricks and mortar bookstore is going to be in the Boston area. There have been mm -hmm. um, job postings on Amazon's corporate website that they're hiring for about 20 positions at a new bookstore at the Legacy Place Mall in Dedham. Um, I don't know how close or far that is from Boston proper. Um, and the job listings note that these are um, workers who will be in the unique position of being face-to-face -face with their customers. This would be the fourth Amazon bookstore. Um, there's one in Seattle, of course. There is one in San Diego. And the third one is planned uh, in Portland. Portland, so you're going to have to go on a research trip. So. Yeah, out in the west suburbs of Portland. I, you know, when um, I, I saw this news and I didn't link to it this week, I, in critical linking or otherwise, I had linked, I think, to every other store announcement that I'd seen for Amazon. And, it, and my not linking to it got me to think about, is this not a store anymore in terms of there's Amazon bookstores around? And then when will it become a story again? Right? Like, when does oh. it get big enough that yeah. Do we start talking about it, this? Do when it puts a Barnes and Noble out of business? When yeah, it, you know, what do you think? I, it seems like it's in the weird in between. Like the first one opening was a big deal um, because Amazon was going to do bricks and mortar. Sure. Like that was a big deal in the run up to it occurring. Like really, when they announced that that's a thing they were going to yeah, do. Yeah, we knew we knew Sauron had an army, right. and here was the first. But here was the exactly. first excursion. <laughs> um, but then it opened, and it. It was kind of crickets. Yeah. Like one of our contributors, uh, Peter Damien, went and visited the store and wrote a nice post about the experience. But it was basically like, ah, that's a bookstore. Right. Um, and it hasn't, you know, rock the San Diego one hasn't like rocked the world off. It'll be interesting to see what happens to it in Portland when it's standing, you know, sort of philosophically opposite to Powell's. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like this is not a thing again unless or until there are enough of them that they are rivaling other bricks and mortar stores. Because for a long time, the story has been that it's online versus bricks and mortar. And so that in practice means it's Amazon versus right. everyone else. Um, and when Amazon, if or when Amazon has a foothold in bricks or mortar, right, in a way that threatens Barnes and Noble, um, or in a way that we start getting stories about like an Amazon store came into the Boston suburbs, and now the Harvard bookstore is closing, yeah, right, right. or something like that. Border Square it's, Books is going out of business or something. Exactly. Like, that, yeah. like if that happens, which I hope it doesn't, those are both <laughs> those are those name checks or bookstores that I Oh, those are those are Mount love. Rushmore independent bookstores in America. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, but it, I think it's that kind of a yeah. story that makes it newsworthy again that Amazon is doing these bricks and mortar stores and otherwise it's just like the fire phone like a thing that Amazon has done that they did maybe yeah. not as bad as the fire phone but like it doesn't seem to have made a splash I don't know if they intended it to make a splash or if they just want to slowly yeah, chip away either. at things but it does feel not quite non-story but it doesn't feel headline worthy mm -hmm. um, at this stage in their growth process for these bricks and mortar stores. It's a drip, drip, drop a little bit. Yeah. You know, at some point it's going to be uh, a storm, I guess, or it might not be, but we're, it's like, okay, it's, it's rains. It's yeah, raining a it's, little bit. I think that Amazon likes the method of boiling the frog slowly. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems to me that it's possible that that's what they're doing 
here um, because I assume that Amazon has the kind of planning abilities and the capital that if they wanted to just like drop open sure. 25 stores yeah, in, yeah. on on one, even on one day, they could do it and just you know, sort of attempt to rock the book buying world with a spectacle. But that's not what's going on here. Yeah. It, so, and, and again, we've talked about this a little bit. Um, as we've talked about Amazon opening stores, we're not really sure what they want. Do they want mm-hmm. a piece of the physical retail pie? Like, they, does Amazon, they think they're sort of a a stable breakdown of physical versus online book buying, right? And so, then, and, the, right. and if that's the case, well, we've got basically as much, they basically have as much of the online book buying market as you can reasonably expect to get, you know, without becoming a monopoly, like a legit monopoly mm-hmm. that needs yeah. DOJ Problem. So if they think that's the case, then the, the place to grow is in physical book selling, right? Then you go after the other piece of the pie. Or is it something where they think if they can weaken physical book buying, like break even or take a loss on these stores, but we can say Barnes & Noble to the point that Barnes & Noble has to go bust or you know, or they really have to contract, they go after the most lucrative market, something like that, then online, they're strengthening their core. Are they strengthening their core business or are they going into a new kind of business? And that's the question I don't really know. I don't yeah, have a sense of that. It's so interesting to me that that Amazon chooses books so often yeah. as the tentacle to put out. Like plenty of people buy diapers and yeah. baby stuff, you know. It's not like an Amazon from, Target, like a Target version right, of Amazon. Yeah, yeah, right. And it's not like an Amazon Best hardware buy. store. A lot of people buy electronics on uh, Amazon, right. like you could go after Best Buy, I guess. Right, or like an Amazon kitchen goods. Mm-hmm. Like there's, they're not trying to rival Bed Bath and Beyond, which especially since we know these days that books is a very small part of their business. I mean, uh, they, they don't, they're not great about breaking out numbers, but just doing the math of like, you know, they have sixty percent of you know book online book sales in America. This is what the industry looks like. It's just not. It's like I think it's like mid single digits of their business. Like even if they doubled it to seven, I, I don't know. It, it, you're right. It, it's a really good point actually that I hadn't thought about to this point because it we have so accustomed to them. You know, Amazon Prime for books and Kindle Unlimited and all these things where they try these experiments around books, but st- books are a low margin business, right? Uh, like what? I don't. It's interesting. Yeah. Why is this the like the test balloon or the canary in the coal mine of a bigger potential bricks and mortar retail play in other industries? Or do they, are they just chipping away at books because Mm -hmm. like, is it possible that books are a blind spot because books are where they started? And so they're just like, well, what else let's, we want to experiment with retail. Let's just start it with books because we started everything else with books. Well, maybe the same reason they started online with books is like it's inventory and there's not a real strong player. It's like Barnes and Noble, which is, you know, it has a gut shot basically at this point, they're not doing very well. And then it's a bunch of, you know, non-federated independent stores. Um, so there's not, there's not a Target, there's not a Walmart where, and there's not a Best Buy where there's a real big, huge market leader where you got to go to toe to toe with. And maybe as much like they book, they work out distribution, they work out, you know, foot traffic, they work out trying to integrate online and physical store data and cross-selling. Maybe this is a low cost. They, these are small stores, like opening a big mm-hmm. Target or Walmart costs a lot of money. It's a yeah, big that's risk. True. Um, as a minimum viable product to, to use some dirtbag uh, startup lingo, the show title, um, you know, it's a good minimum viable product. Like it's a, it's a low cost 
minimum viable product because there's not a lot of competition. It also doesn't cost very much. And the way the books work, they can return the books if they don't sell them. Like that's one of the crazy things about books. <laughs> like, right? Anyway, it also just seems to me though that if they wanted to do a target no. situation, they have all the geographic customer data. Sure. Like they know what people in sure. Richmond, Virginia are buying on Amazon, that if they wanted to set up a store that had the Amazon prices mm. that I guess in this imaginary model would be better than the target prices, they would know exactly how to stock it based on historical data of things that people have bought or that are in their buy soon cart list thingamajiggers. Um, and then to guess based on those products, what the other things are that you could get them to impulse buy. Um, I guess clothing might be more of a challenge if we're looking like at the straight target to Amazon comparison, but in terms of like the Shinsky's just bought a vacuum cleaner. And so here are the filters for it. We should stock Mm -hmm. those in our store. They could easily do that. This is just, I'm interested and a little confused about the book, the book tentacle. Yeah. I guess what question are they trying to answer is the way to think about it. Are they trying to answer like, can we kill Barnes and Noble? Can we get into physical books? Or will people shop at an Amazon store of any kind? And this is a, this is a trial balloon and we're Mm -hmm. getting data and we're deciding because, you know, to stock a target, to build a target out, you know, equivalent or a Walmart or a Best Buy, like, millions of dollars in inventory and you've, you've got suppliers coming from all the world. The other nice thing about books really is it's, it's pretty top heavy in terms of distribution and they already have it. They have it on their own. Right. They can stock and it out of their own warehouses. Probably. You're dealing with what, like maybe half a dozen distributors yeah. until you start getting into the stuff with small publishers like Baker and Taylor and Ingram. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I don't even know. I mean, I honestly don't know. Does Amazon even deal with those guys anymore? Like, yeah, are, are, I don't they, know. Are, are they big enough that like they're their own distributor? I, yeah, I don't know. Because they, they, I know they pound out deals independently with publishers, like mm-hmm. you see with Hachette and these other things. That get out. I, if, you were, if you're doing that, I don't know that you're going through a middleman. Like yeah, that's true. Taylor. I'm not sure. Anyway, all right, we spent enough. Anyway, we're, it's interesting and confusing. Yeah, we're confused. We don't know what to think. I mean, we don't know what to think differently than what we didn't know what to think when this started. <laughs> that makes some kind of sense. <laughs> Uh, all right. Um, let's do some more industry stuff. Uh, Publishers Weekly annual survey of uh, employee salaries in the book biz. Um, this is the third year, I think. Third year. I never know what to make of this. Um, I guess it's some of the stuff we know. Like, yeah, it's, what, what do you make of this? I guess the I mean, one I saw, the, yeah, go, you, you tell me where you want drip, to. Drip, it's drip, drip, drip. Yeah, right. Like the headlines have been sort of the sweeping generalization headlines have been little change in diversity in publishing, which is the truest, sad, true story. Um, The, you know, compensation bumps are small. The complaints that people have about their jobs um, are the same complaints that they've had for the last few years, low salary, higher workload, lack of advancement, lack of recognition, management problems. Um, publishing remains largely white, 88% here. Um, only 2% of the publishing workforce re- who participated in the survey report being black, 3% Asian, 4% Hispanic, 3% mixed race. Um, all of the obvious representation and inclusive. And this is problems. worse than we saw that was that Lee and Lowe did. Who did that big study? The yeah, that was Lee. Seventy six percent white, and this is eighty eight percent. So, uh, you know, fifteen. Uh, I mean, twelve uh, percent in uh, absolute terms, but much higher than that in relative 
difference. Yeah. So. And they ask, um, it's interesting, they, one of the questions was, has, have strides been made in improving title diversity? Um, 67% of the white participants in the survey said yes. 57% of the non-white participants said yes. So still a majority um, uh, in both sets um, said that they are seeing improved title diversity. Um, my personal experience says that that's true also, um, I'm still only getting like I was crunching numbers on my reading so far to have an anecdata corner for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and about 38 percent of the books that I've read this year have been by people of color, but less than 10 percent of the books I've gotten in the mail have been by people of color. Um, it feels like it's getting better, but it's not good yet um, by quite a stretch. An interesting contrast to that, though, is when they asked, have strides been made in improving diversity in the workforce? Mm-hmm. Um it's really no. Um, only 31% of white participants said yes, and 21% of non-white participants said yes. So the publishing workforce l- largely feels like it is predominantly white and it's staying white. Um, and that is not surprising to me. There have been a bunch of studies about this collecting data. And then earlier this year, I think it was in Brooklyn Magazine, Molly McArdle um, interviewed 50 different people in publishing about um, experiences that they had had with um, gender discrimination, with racial discrimination, with microaggressions in the workplace related to race and gender and sexual orientation. Um, And the stories were horrifying frequently and and sadly very recent in the examples that were given. Um, There's been a lot of talk about wanting to improve the workforce diversity, but we haven't seen any U.S., any of like the big five publishers take big stands on how to change the pipeline. And it's when you're talking about the workforce, you're talking about changing the pipeline. The thing that really needs to happen is the elimination of unpaid internships that you already have to be in a, a privileged position to take to get your foot in the door. Yeah, some of the and gates it, have to come down at the beginning, like right, lower the barriers and, to entry. Right, that needs can. to occur. And then active recruitment of people of color needs to occur because the thing that we keep hearing from the higher ups in publishing houses that keeps coming out in these pieces and in these interviews is like, well, we want to hire more people of color, but they're just not applying. Um, and so somebody has to go out and take the step of actively recruiting people of color and encouraging them to apply for positions um, and creating a pipeline of workers that is more diverse. What do you think's interesting? Um, or, or that's not interesting about this? That, that 88% Caucasian, white Caucasian versus the rest of the industry, um, black people are about one seventh of what proportional representation relative to the U.S. population at large should be. Like, that's a very, very bad number. Um, mm-hmm. Not as bad for Hispanics. And Asians are right on the money, I think, if my memory is right, about 3 or 4%. Um, the other one is the 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 gender wage gap. Um, yeah. That's the, I think, I guess even more than the diversity one, just because I've, that number we've seen recently before, an equivalent number. And this Publishers Weekly one, where we get a gender um, pay gap, um, all job functions, the average, the median, again, median, not average, excuse me, the median man gets paid $96,000. And again, I should say the methodology, this is um, opt-in surveys of people who subscribe to Publishers Weekly. They had like f- about 500 respondents. So all the methodological kind of caveats you can think of mm-hmm. apply there and what may be represented here. If you make a lot of money, maybe you want to respond. I don't know. But of people who do respond, um, the, the median man make $96,000, which seems like a lot for the median response. 
mm-hmm. in general, but the median woman made sixty-one thousand. So, a fifty percent, more than a fifty percent haircut. Mm-hmm. Like that's it's worse than you know what's the what's the number using that seventy-eight cents per dollar. Right. right. That's a twenty-two percent slide. Mm-hmm. This is double, more than double that. Yeah. Uh, in publishing, um, and even and, and so you know one. Again, this doesn't make it better it's a, as a way of explanation. Sometimes people say, well, one thing that happens is that men are disproportionately in management in publishing rather than editorial. So, okay, let's they look by job function. In management, the median man is 125 and the median woman is 100. So it's a 25% haircut uh, right there. Um, sales and marketing is represented like if the sales and marketing is 96 and 61 so the same as all job functions in editorial it's 90 and 56 and that's the one where i would think i mean the again i don't know it maybe it's a bit of a mansplaining explanation that but i've heard before is like well one thing that happens in publishing is that there's more men in sales and marketing and more women in editorial and across all industries not just publishing sales and marketing generally gets paid more than editorial that's generally what happens for a variety of reasons, and maybe how someone has to do sex in the movie, it doesn't. But it was a way of saying, well, it's comparing apples and oranges because that's two different, basically, job markets, right? Um, but this is saying, even in editorial, where women are 84% of the industry, they broke it down by 84%, mm-hmm. and yet they are um, almost half the pay. Uh, a disaster. A disaster. Right. If these numbers are representative of the industry and we don't know, we don't know. Uh, we don't know. how these 500 respondents compare, it looks like there are a few men making a lot of money in editorial and a lot of women making much less. I think the thing is that it's the, the, there are dudes at the top of a lot of these houses. Right? Yeah. And the when publishers, you, when you hear, the executive editors, right. all the big dogs and their lieutenants. Um, and I've seen this in meetings. Uh, I don't want to name names because mm-hmm. that's that's not you know people didn't take those meetings it's off the record right but when you meet with the head publisher um, or an executive editor I've seen a lot of times it's a dude with a couple other dudes that's not mm-hmm. atypical um, that bears out here um, yeah. and and still the stories about legendary editors yeah. um, are largely stories about men. Mm-hmm. There are some very well-known um, women editors, and there are currently some that are really on the rise yeah. that I think in another like 20 years, we're going to be telling stories about these women who were legendary editors who had, you know, the like the golden touch for acquiring mm-hmm. great books or books that were going to sell very well. But those stories are still in development. And we I mean, like Regan this... Arthur, right, is a good example right. of that. You and know. Um, Nan Talese yeah. is one right. of them. She has her own imprint, so is Regan. Um, right. Um, and, you know, some great women doing great work, um, but it's it's not there yet. Yeah. And well, it relates to that pipeline problem because these are these are not numbers you can change overnight, especially when it comes to salary, because these are 20, 30, 40 year careers. Like it takes time to be uh, you know, Robert Gottlieb, right, who has an, a book right, coming out. Right. He's been a longtime editor. Um, it takes time to be the the lead editor to rise through the ranks and become the publisher, the, you know, things like that. So this number, I don't think it's reasonable, even in my um, equity minded mind to say, this is not a number you can change next year. This is not a, these aren't, these salary numbers aren't numbers that are going to be equal over the next years. This is, this is a 20 year problem. Yeah. And this it is starts like with the pipeline. Generation. And every yeah. year that 
um, you don't make any improvement just pushes the you, you can't you can't say well we'll get to that next year can't get to next year because it's it's like saving for retirement mm-hmm. and you know I want to go back I I think I'm now pretty skeptical about how representative these numbers are mm. um, just given this all job functions median report of sixty six thousand um, making sixty six thousand dollars per year um, combined with men and women because the like at least the story that I hear is you take your unpaid internship and then you take your like first job as a marketing assistant or an editorial assistant or a publicity assistant and they're, you know, paying you $45,000 a year maybe mm-hmm. and telling you that you should be happy to be working for that in New York. Like that's a the kind of salary that that is in the rest of the country is a different story from the kind of salary that is in New York with the cost of living, but you should be happy to like suffer for it and have to work a bunch of side jobs to pay your bills because books are this noble profession. Um, I would guess that the, if I'm, I'm guessing now, because that's what we're doing, um, that participants here who have a subscription to Publishers Weekly, first of all, are paying for their subscription to Publishers Weekly. Well, they could and... get it through the job of their office. Like, well, I don't yeah, know. I mean, yeah, I, I agree with the general um, but idea, it looks, but yeah, it I'm seems high that, like, across the board. I agree with that yeah, observation. Yeah, it seems high. And so the resp- I would guess the respondents here are either older, so they've mm-hmm. been in their positions longer and they're making more money, um, or yes, they're older and they've been in their positions longer and they're making more money, like all of the above. Um, That's 66. I think if you looked at a lot of people in their first five years of their publishing careers, you know, folks in their mid to late 20s and showed them and you know a median of sixty six thousand dollars salary. They'd be like, "Well, not yeah, among median because median is that's the equivalent number have more and equivalent number have less because average right. I might buy because you get some outliers at the top right, that pulls right, right. everybody up. Yeah, you get that dude in management yeah. who's making one hundred and twenty five thousand. Or more, average yeah, or up, more. Right. You're making yeah. five hundred a million. I mean, yeah. if you're like executive level, um, you can make a lot of money, uh, especially these are big time corporations. So. There's what it is. Wage gap. It's a bad looking chart. I mean, I, they, it it's is. a bad looking chart for those sorts of things. Um, I, I have to say the only bright spot is, and it's, and it's only 57% of the, the industry, more people than not in the industry, even, even among non-white employees who I think were probably a more accurate, um, representation of, you know, what's going on. Titles are saying there's more titles because that's something you can change overnight. I mean, that's something you can change in a year. Mm-hmm. what titles you're publishing. And maybe that's the uh, thin end of the wedge into diversity is the actual titles and the readership and the authors. And then you bring on more um, entry-level, mid-career people from other industries because you're not going to hire someone that doesn't have any publishing experience to come be your manager, but you could hire someone that's in marketing in a different industry who's in yeah. sales in a different industry, things like that. Um, let's do another sponsor. You want to tell me another book? Tell me about another book. Yes, we have The Courtship of Eva Eldridge by Diane Simmons. This is out from the University of Iowa Press. This is a riveting narrative of detection, and it's a moving story about individual lives that are caught up in the changing gender roles generated by World War II. Fascinating time in America's history. Uh, At the center of the story is Eva Eldridge. She fell in love and married Vic, a man with a secret and troubling past who disappears not long after their honeymoon. Drawing on 800 letters and papers, Diane Simmons tells of Eva's struggle to get her dream husband back, as well as the stories of the women who had stood at the altar with Vic before and after. Hmm. 
Nice. Yeah. I love that so title. I love that title, The Courtship of X. I like, I always like that like sort that? of, I don't, I don't know. There's something about that I like. Um, anyway. Well, this one's for you. Yeah, that's good. Uh, thanks for them sponsoring the show. Yeah, there'll be a link in the show notes and you can pick up The Courtship of Eva Eldridge wherever books are sold. Let's see, let's do, we did some thinky reported stuff. Let's let's hit hit some news type things. Um, MacArthur Genius Grant winners broke last yeah, night. Yeah, good news. Very good news. Um, what's the top story for us? What are the top stories for us here? Hmm, well, we got lots of authors, as seems to usually happen with the MacArthur. Um, Claudia Rankine, who yeah. wrote uh, Citizen, well-deserving. Maggie Nelson. Mm, Argonauts. Uh, is a, yeah, the Argonauts. And um, this, I think it's called The Red Parts. I read mm-hmm. earlier this year. Really fascinating. She does those like break your bl- brain in very pleasant ways, uh, approaches to writing. And um, Jean Lewin Young. Hmm who uh, is a comic book writer, graphic novelist. Contributes to us. Contributes to book book comics. comics. He's the um, Library of Congress ambassador for... for young adult or comics or something. Something like that. Doing really interesting work. He's written Superman, uh, all sorts of interesting stuff. Just a really smart, interesting guy. Uh, Let's see. There was a playwright. Now I can't find his name. Um, What is it? I mean, these three that are square in our our industry are, I mean, there's a lot of people you could choose, but these are certainly three that if I had to write down a list of 25, I think Mm -hmm. I would have. If yeah. I had to and include him on my list, I would have smacked my head and said, oh, I should have. I mean, Rankine, I think, is that, I mean, that's, that one mm-hmm. makes all the sense. Uh, Yang, I think, also makes all the sense in the world. Nelson, I guess, I don't know. I, I, she's great. I guess I wouldn't have picked her out first. I mean, Rankine and Wang, I'm like, yes, of course. Nelson does super interesting work. Um, that's the one I, oh, you know. Yeah, I Maggie Nelson about. sort of lives in the part of my reader brain that Colson Whitehead occupies. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, they're interesting thinkers yeah. to me. And so this doesn't, that doesn't surprise me. The playwright is Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. I don't know that name. Uh, and my only exposure to him is, uh, Lisa Lucas, our friend yeah. at the National Book Foundation had tweeted a while back, like, you need to read this man. He is a genius. And then she, you know, uh, revived that tweet this morning mm. as a sort of, ha ha. Told right. you so. <laughs> right. Kudos <laughs> you gotta, points for Lisa for calling. That. Right. Yeah. Lisa's a great follow on Twitter. She if is. you're looking for, um, out of the box, you know, recommendations for things that you should be reading and paying attention to. Uh, the oldest recipient is Joyce J. Scott. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's 67. She's a Baltimore-based artist whose work includes performance art and large sculptural pieces mm-hmm. um, that incorporate beadwork, commentary on American culture, the black female body, and other subjects. Um, I always like that about the MacArthur Genius Grants, that there are some familiar names. Yeah. Um, like, you know, Claudia Rankine is not quite a household name, but I think should be coming close. Um, and then you get these, you know, artists that at least uh, to me are not uh, known or not household names, and they're going to get this boost from mm-hmm. uh, from being recognized by the MacArthur Genius yeah. Grant. Congratulations really? to, to everyone there. It's, what's it, 500 yeah. grand over five years? Is that the deal? Yeah, I think that's what it is. Really interesting. And it's just like a keep on trucking. Mm-hmm. You know, like you get your Yeah, you, you don't get have to do money, anything. You don't have to pr- produce anything. You go know. do your work. Yeah, maybe quit your day job for, yeah. or put it on hold for five years. Um, cool story. Oh, it's uh, 625000 oh, over five years. Yeah cost of living. Yeah. No strings attached uh, is the the theme here. So you don't have to produce anything extra. You don't have to apply for this, I don't think. Um, they just tell you that you get this money to go continue being awesome. Yeah, that's great. Um, let's <laughs> do some great. quick hit stuff. Um, let's see where we go. Google. 
That was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we we followed with interest um, the the voyage of the good ship oyster which we mm-hmm. we used to talk about one time sponsored the I I'd say of the subscription the subscription book services we've seen that's kind of our favorite uh, you know they all have um, scripts getting a little, a lot better I should say than it, than than it once was but oyster that was acquired by Google um, and they sunsetted uh, again to use dirtbag startup language again they sunsetted oyster <laughs> and brought the team on and they've been working on the user experience for Google Play Books um, and now Google Play Books is interesting to discover so I guess it's Google Play Books discover um, mm-hmm. maybe we need to work on that uh, branding but what it does is um, it's on iOS and Android it's available now if you won't get it it's Smart technology that caters to your lifestyle, boy. Talk about reading the marketing language out loud. So, but, but basically, what it does is it recommends stories and books for you because it if you if you're full in on the Google experience and it's reading your email and doing all that creepy stuff that Google does, mm-hmm. it's saying you might like this story, you might like right. this book, you read this book, you bought this book, you bought this song, you bought this movie. Basically, integrating all the thing that Google knows about you, which is terrifying um, as it is, but. The one thing it can do, or one of the many things it can do with that data, the one thing that might be especially delightful for a user is what can it learn about you and then turn that learning into, yeah. check this out. Right. It's like, a, it, this I think is an elegant way to use this big data that mm-hmm. Google has. Like it, it counts on knowing some things about you. So I think you'll get the best experience here if you've been buying eBooks through Google Play. Um, so it would have been interesting to see, say, Amazon try this with all of the readerly data that they have about people. But it's cool to yeah. like, okay, so you read the latest Don DeLillo book. Here's an interview with Don DeLillo at NPR books yes. that you might want to check out. Um, crossed with some of that just title discovery of you read Don DeLillo, here's another book uh, that you might like that's by Don DeLillo. Here's an essay someone wrote about the Don DeLillo title. Um, you sort of read alikes plus content, basically book recommendations and content recommendations based on um, what Google knows about you and your reading habits. Mm-hmm. Also, there's an editorial be- part too. They're not leaving yeah. it all to, to uh, how. Um, they're l- right, letting yeah. some humans do some stuff. I, this is all. This is all back to our, you know, one of the, you know, there's probably four or five big questions in book selling, right? And, and I don't know what they all are, but there's not that many that are that um, compelling and evergreen. But one of them is something, something discovery, right? Something, mm-hmm. something discover. Do readers have a problem with discovery? Like, is this? We talk about this all the time. I don't feel myself like ah, I can't find anything to read. Can't, I can't find anything else on the internet to read. You know, like it, I'm not bored with my reading. So what problem is this solving? Is this solving a problem they want? Like we hope that if we can provide uh, 11% better recommendations that readers will buy more books, spend more time in the Google ecosystem, see more ads on, you know, The Verge because we, you know, Google ads on The Verge because we recommend them, but, uh, the, just the right article for them at the right time. Or is it this not a problem that people have or is it somewhere in the middle right I, i'm just not yeah, sure about this yeah i think our sample is really skewed because we are it, we're in the industry we're early tech adopters the people who listen to this show pay attention to the industry yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and are into tech but i've i was thinking about this kind of all week because i do think it's one of the more interesting plays that we've seen um to try to do content around book recommendations like uh, google 
I think was way too slow on launching their ebook oh, store. Um, and it was bad at first. Like they're, they're making up ground for that. But if it had been a robust, great experience and they had really been able to rival Amazon's ebook store in some way, this would be really interesting to me. I think this is geared towards later adopters, mm. um, the kinds of readers that don't have Twitter feeds filled with people that are recommending stuff to them already or that aren't already diehard Goodreads users. Mm. Like since we're doing dirtbag startup stuff, we can talk about crossing the chasm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how it maps out the uh, the tech adoption patterns or really the adoption patterns for any new product. And there are those people in the front tail, like sort of your uh, two standard deviations ahead of the mean. And then once you get into that like fat, juicy 68% middle of the normal curve, you're looking at people who you know, aren't really remarkable in their uses of technology. By definition, they're average. Um, and this, I think, serves that kind of reader who is maybe just coming to ebooks and they're using Google Play because the Google Play store is what's available on their phone. Um, and Google knows some things about them because they're using an Android device. They're checking their mail through Gmail. They do all of their internet browsing on their Google device. And it can, it's a way to like, I don't need this because I have a Twitter feed full of people who can either just tweet out, like, here's a great, interesting interview with Don DeLillo or people who will tweet directly at me and say like, Hey, I know you love Marilyn Robinson. Did you see this latest mm. interview? Um, and this Google technology is, uh, either circumventing the need for that or serving a, a customer who doesn't have that set up already. Yeah, but the thing that's interesting, um, I mean, I've been reading a lot of books about influence recently and marketing mm -hmm. and just because I've gone through sales and some of the top in my Busman's MBA, which continues apace, I should say. I haven't, I haven't uh, talked about it recently. But one thing about influence is that you need trust, but also you also need multiple touch points. Like our, 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 our uh, sales director, Jan, said, you know, you've got to talk to someone five to seven times. And that's why word of mouth is so hard to quantify because usually it means you've heard about a book in like three different places from – or five different places from multiple different people and multiple different sources. A one-time robot recommendation that's just you might like, it, just, it doesn't tick any of the boxes for how we understand influence to work. I mean, just putting a title, you don't have any context for it. You don't know the robot. You don't know why it's recommending it yeah, to you. I, I, I just don't know. I think it works. I think it works for content more than it works for book recommendations. Yeah, right. um, like you might like this article um, that we're surfacing to you based on other things that we know you've read. Like that, I mean, I, at least that works on me sometimes. Um, right, because there's no investment. You're not spending 15 bucks right, in seven sure, hours right, of your exactly. time. Exactly. Sure, I'll click this thing. Right. Occasionally something serves me a, like, here's, I think, my only example uh, when I've at least been conscious of it. Like, we're unconscious or unaware of our, of our real reasons for yes. buying a thing at the time that we choose to buy it so often um, that this is maybe not the first that I've ever done, but my Facebook feed served me a BuzzFeed post about somebody hiking the Appalachian Trail recently, mm -hmm. which that is a spot on selection for what's in my wheelhouse lately, mm -hmm. right? Like, um, it's basically Facebook. But, but, but is, like, does they, do they know? Because I don't know that. We don't, I guess we don't know what goes into Facebook, but that could just be dumb luck. Like, I mean, it, it could be. Yeah. It could just be dumb luck. Um, but it could be that, like, I've been, I, recently purchased a jillion books about national parks and have been like, yeah. that's been all over my internet. So all the places that Facebook can follow me that I'm not even aware of, it knows, it knows that that's a thing that I've been up to. Um, so I gave the algorithm some credit there um, for service. Well, but then you have to compare all, all the things that they serve you that you don't click on it. I mean, 
Yeah, I get right yeah. that you have. I mean, is that a false positive though? I, I don't know. Like we Maybe. don't have any I, data. I don't know. But it. like the path, the like it took the full. It went the full path. So like, if the algorithm was responsible for serving me this thing that I would be likely to click on, that's an it was an essay or an excerpt from a book um, about hiking the Appalachian Trail. The book is called On Trails. It's by um, Robert Moore. It's sitting on my desk right now um, because the BuzzFeed post that Facebook served me actually got me to buy the book, yeah. which is the first time that I've bought a book. Um, like immediately after reading an excerpt or an essay yeah. on BuzzFeed. And so like if it if Google's thing works that way, it might get me occasionally. It might get some other readers occasionally. And all you really need is an occasional hit. I get um, I mean, I don't know. I, my sense of it and, you know, let us know what you think of these algorithms. Have you bought something by, you know, a good read recommendation or you might also like or anything that uses that language as an algorithm. Let, let us know if you podcast at Um My sense is that People just finding stuff to read if they want to read isn't a problem. But there is opportunity to increase sort of customer satisfaction with their reading, with, with the books they've read, right? Like there's so many things to pick that you have a little bit of um, choice paralysis. But I do think there is a, a an opportunity for someone to figure out a way to – they're going to read X number of books, but they might enjoy those books that they buy and read or lend or mm -hmm. whatever a little bit more. Yeah, it's that quality of book yeah, life Yeah, quality of book again. life. So, and I, I just don't see this moving the needle. Like if the question is, is this going to be something that really moves the needle for people? Uh, I think the answer is no. Um, but I guess if you're, if you're in the Google ecosystem and use Google Play, then it's something you, you, might, you might get in Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I don't think it's going to get people to buy more books. Right. But it might deepen the satisfaction or improve the quality um, of the recommendations that that readers receive. Yeah. And, uh, and like those multiple points of influence still matter. Like I, I think a day after I bought on and this is all you know, it's anecdata. But after I bought on trails, um, Valerie Michael, who's a book riot contributor, mm -hmm. who's also very like naturey, um, mentioned on our book riot Slack channels something about this book being one of like the best books about the outdoors that she had read mm. this month. And somebody did the like rotating alarm <laughs> of like, has Rebecca heard about this book about hiking <laughs> in a national park? Um, so somebody else in my sphere of influence would have pointed me at that book a day or two later anyway. Um, but it, it worked for me in that way. Um, the pieces of it that that I've read have been have been great and have been more enjoyable than my average mm. reading selection. So it's kind of it, I don't know it it could be a false positive. It could also just be a positive that's unusual um, for having actually worked. Right. Um, but it felt in the moment it felt like the start the, the cosmic tumblers of the internet aligning. Yeah, to, yeah, to, exactly. To, to, it felt like oh, this is how this is supposed to right. work. Like the the algorithm at its best is supposed to serve me something. It's supposed to serve me a piece of content that's right in my wheelhouse that is a good enough piece of content that it will convince me to buy a book. Um, and the whole thing happened. All the dominoes fell. Like, right, the cosmic tumblers. Sort of the opposite of this model of like letting the algorithm choose is our last sponsor, FabFitFun, which mm -hmm. is a subscription box where they pick stuff they think people are going to like. There's humans. They're, they're, not, they're not using an algorithm to decide like what, what kind of bath yeah. bomb someone it wants. It is so well curated. So very well curated with premium, full-size fashion, beauty, fitness, and lifestyle products. Comes out once each season, which I, I understand to be their four seasons. Um, in Portland, mm -hmm. they're sort of when it rains and when it doesn't. Um, it retails for $49.99, but always has a retail value of the stuff in the box of over $200. And in fact, the fall box is 250 So you're getting a 5X return 
if you'd bought it by yourself. You can go subscribe at fabfitfun.com. Listeners to this show can use offer code RIOT to get 10 bucks off their first box. And if you like it and want to refer a friend and you refer them, you get 15 off your box and their friend will get $10 off their box. So you can save money. Let's put it that way, using your offer code. Like I said, I like the bath bomb. The kids love the bath bomb. Michelle liked the bath bomb. Lots of interesting things. There's some, there's some stuff that um, Michelle and Rowan, who's like, she's three, and so she wants to be like mom and put on some ointment and salves and tinctures and stuff. They got to share a couple <laughs> of things uh, right there. Um, also, the garden. Ointment and salves and tinctures. Well, I, 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 this is another. <laughs> Men explain cosmetics. There's another, what's the difference between an ointment and a, and a salve? No one knows. Um, <laughs> uh, or, or a gel and a goo and a, and a slime. Uh, beauty slimes, lots of beauty slimes. Out beauty there. slimes. Um, so some of the things of the the don't surprise, spoil it. But here are a couple of things that are in the fall box for sure: uh, skin laundry night serum. See there you go, serum. A pure cosmetics naked eyeshadow palette, French lavender body oil, and a, a mod class scarf. So you get you know an, a, a genuine clothing item. So go to fabfitfun.com. Use offer code RIOT. Thanks so much for them to sponsoring the show. Treat yourself to something. Treat someone else um, that could use a sort of seasonal lift, a uh, box of fun stuff. Yeah. I think, that, I has think, to, I think are... that has to be our show. We're running out of time. We're running out of time here. It, it, oh, I guess it does. Yeah. It probably does. You know, I got to mention the the thing that I found delightful yes. this week. Let's Can do we it. just have delight? Oh, delight I know where you're going. Corner? Yes, yes. Tell me. You know? Two minutes on this. this. Is, yeah. It's great. The New York Public Library has installed a train like this is a high tech train, but it looks like a little choo choo train that can climb walls mm, that mm. Um, it's in the um, the Bryant Park location, the Stephen A. Schwartzman building, which is at Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street. And it delivers requested materials to researchers who are working in the library. <laughs> like so awesome. They, they had already found a tech solution. There used to be a series of conveyor belts, but there's a train now. You know, a little like, train delivering stuff to you makes little, everything better. So much. It's 950 feet of vertical and horizontal track. There are 24 cars that can each carry 30 pounds of material. It moves 75 feet per minute. It's like it uses electronic sensors to track everything. It can move materials through 11 different levels of the library. I, I can't handle it. It's too awesome. It's it is too awesome. Like I need to go research a thing so that I can experience this firsthand. If you are in New York and you happen to be researching at the NYPL or you have something that you could research coming up soon, like please, 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 please find something that needs the train and just, take a video. Like, I will it. assign you a project if you need something. Yes. Uh, and go get yourself materials delivered by this train. Like I, I just cannot think of anything more delightful. There's. Um, Did you ever know that restaurant a, in Kansas City? Ah. I was just oh, about yeah. to. What was Fritz's. it called? Do you know? It's called Fritz's. Fritz's. Yeah. They yeah, deliver the like food an, by train. It's great. Yeah, it's like an old school diner and you place your order by like picking up a phone yes. at the table. And then this little train runs around the, it runs around like the top edge uh -huh. of the restaurant. And when your burgers are ready, a tray at your table goes up to the train and it drops your burgers and fries. And, yeah. It's amazing. I want everything um, delivered by tiny trains that, that's yeah, just if you're, um, yeah if you are in our beloved hometown yeah. anytime soon uh, there's the original fritz's sort of downtown and then there's one at crown center which is a good family you know location if you're already doing a bunch of tourist stuff you need to have your burger delivered to you by a train yeah i want to know if, if <laughs> like, anyone out there is uh has any train delivery 
retail yeah. stores. Um, you can always tell, you can uh, gauge <clears throat> our interest in how much we're excited for that. <laughs> yeah, like what else could we deliver? Yeah, deliver you can already get burgers, you can get books. That seems cool. Like, I don't know, you could do something like that, I think. Like maybe if you, like some airport should put yeah. this in, Ooh. and then you could order like the earbuds that oh, you forgot oh, to pack. I like that. I like that. All right. I love this. This was my delight. Yeah, that's a, it's a great, you can Google it. And all oh, the link in the show notes. That, oh, I can, that gets me a way out of here. Uh, link yeah. in the show notes. Uh, you can find show notes at bookwrite.com slash listen. You see all our shows there. You can navigate to this episode, which is 176. You can choose the email podcast at bookwrite.com. Thanks so much to our sponsors this week. Um, the courtship of Ava. Oh, what's her last name? What's her last name? Aldridge. Aldridge. Uh, Fab Fit Fun and Crooked Kingdom. Um, by Lee Bardugo, all out this week. Links in the show notes. You can find those where books are sold. And we'll talk to you. Oh, Book Right Live. Go get a ticket. Yep. Offer code Wheelhouse. And, you know, if you are listening to this and you want to treat yourself to some books oh. and bookish stuff. Yeah. Our September book mailbox is on sale in the Book Riot store. Well, it's currently on sale on Thursday when we're recording yes. the show. I anticipate that we will have some, uh, oh, uh, probably a really small quantity remaining by the time that this drops on Sunday or Monday. So check that out for 60 bucks, which includes shipping. Uh, you're going to get a couple of books that are hand-selected by moi, around an awesome theme and a bunch of other bookish items. There are some things that are made exclusively for the box. There is some content, special stuff um, from the authors of the books that you can only get access to if you buy the box. This is not a subscription, at least not yet. Uh, so you're not committing no. to anything other than this one adventure. Uh, this is a really good box. And uh as a little tip of insider info, we're going to be doing some interesting things with one of the titles yeah. that's featured in the box later in the fall. So you don't want to miss I out. I forgot about this. that. I'm excited about it all over again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, go to store.bookriot.com. Get your September book mailbox. If they happen to have been sold out by the time that you get there, you can sign up for the waiting list so you don't miss the next one, which will be out in December. Great. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. Mm -hmm.